Hi and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. I'm Pip Adam and this is episode 92 and the final episode in our season on place. So um, we wave goodbye to place um, at the end of um, this episode um, in the Elements year-long um, journey of craft. Oh, are we in a craft? Is it of craft? Who knows? Um, and our next podcast after this one will be um, about plot. Um, I've called this season plot, but I think it's a lot more about how we tell story and structure story and structure the works that we make. Um, yeah, so I've recorded a couple of episodes for that already. And um, yeah, they're shaping up to be very exciting. But we should stay in the moment. So then this, the final episode on place, I talked to Anne Shelton about a work of hers called The Witch. It's a wide-ranging conversation about Anne's work and how she conceptualises place in it. One important thing to note because of the nature of Anne's work is that the plants discussed in these texts and their uses can be dangerous, even lethal. These texts are presented here as background research for a body of artworks and should not be interpreted as any kind of medical advice. Um, Anne um, says, do not mess with these plants. I'm very grateful to Anne for taking the time to talk to me. Um, her work has been a big inspiration to me for a long time and I'm a big fan of her work and her thinking around the work. Um, a Lover's Herbal is an exhibition that can be viewed on Denny Dimmon's gallery website and I've put a link to this on our website better-red.com. I'd also like to thank Copyright Licensing New Zealand for their contribution toward the funding tour of this podcast and um, yeah at the end of the podcast I'll offer an exercise so yeah I really hope you enjoy this talk I enjoyed it a great deal and thanks again to Anne Shelton. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Morena. How's your day Morena. going? Pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. That's a nice day, eh? Yeah. Windy. A little windy, but beautifully cool autumn day. Oh, I said the autumn word. I love autumn. It's my favourite season. <laughs> it's in technically still summer though, isn't it's it? it? Oh, Is yeah, it? that's right. Yeah, they shifted it all round. <laughs> Although one, one day it's just going to be one season the whole way through. Oh, God, what a terrible thought. Um... Thank you so much for agreeing to be recorded today. I really appreciate it. And I was wondering if we could start with you introducing yourself, um, however you want to do that. Ko Anne Shelton, Tukuingua, ko Auraki, Tamonga, ko Opihi Te Awa. My name's Anne Shelton, and yeah, I'm, I'm an artist, and I live in Whanganui Atara. Awesome, man! It's so good. You, you are an artist, man. You're one of my favorite artists. It's just I, I always get excited when I get to talk to you. Um, today we've chosen to talk about a work that you made, which is called the Witch. And I was just wondering, um, could you describe this work, however you want to describe it? Yeah. Okay, so I think. Seeing as our medium today is a podcast, I think I'll just give a little bit of a visual description of the work for a start, and people can um, go and look it up. Uh, but it's a it's a sort of deep blue background, and a small um, there's a little kind of uh, terracotta pot. It's only actually about ten centimeters high, but in the photograph, it's actually a lot bigger than that. And there's a stick, which is kind of balanced on the pot horizontally, with um, little bits of lichen 
growing off it and on top of that is some tiny sprigs of pennyroyal and pennyroyal is a very uh, minute plant its leaves are perhaps you know two three millimeters long and it, it's um, I found it really really difficult to grow mm. <laughs> it took me years um, to actually produce enough of it to to make a couple of photographs and um, it's it's a very dangerous plant it's toxic but it's also an abortive scent or it will end a pregnancy and it's been used you know since Roman times for that purpose um, it's its history goes back to Europe and North Africa and it's it's part of the mint family so it, it gets its name uh, from something to do with fleas because <laughs> it was used to um, to get rid of fleas historically um, so it's got a long medicinal history making the photograph actually took me three attempts I think um, possibly more but eventually I worked out this way to treat the plant that, that worked for an image and that was balancing it on this little bit of lichen coloured stick um, so yeah, Pennyworld's also got um, some popular culture links. You know, it's a um, subject of a Kurt Cobain song, Penny, Penny Royal Tea. Um, but it has, so it has, a, you know, connect, contemporary resonances, but it also has a long and old history, which relates to the persecution of women and the alienation of capital and knowledge from women. Um, through the persecution of witches obviously invoked in its title and that um you know the the processes of of um of persecution of the female body uh and also of knowledge that was held by women historically mm. so i chose this work because it's kind of pivotal for me because it points to my next body of work which is actually, um, it's provisionally titled Hex Bane Hex, and it's about plants and herbs that are associated with long, uh, these long histories um, to do with medicine and knowledge held by women. Um, you know, one might call them wise women or wart cunners or witches. And um, in these new images, herbs and plants are suspended in water and so the pictures are engaging with um, methods not dissimilar to those involved in making teas or mm. tonics mm. or tinctures or infusions etc and that you know you might describe them as being like sort of wading deep below the surface of a swamp mm. they're kind of, you know these these kind of watery underwater emblematic kind of they're kind of emblematic of debased knowledge or lost knowledge or rotting and decay the plant a lot of the plants in them are, are rotting Man, that so yeah amazing. so the witch is kind of a link between the series jane says yeah which is about plants that have histories to do with birth control and uh abortion for women and uh, yeah, and then this work links us through to the next body of work, which has a, a wider context of looking at knowledge held by women. Mm. Can I can I just pick up on one thing that you said, and it was something that in a recent talk really 
blew my mind and had not um you grow a lot of the plants that are in the work so sometimes making the work is something that reaches back four five six ten years yeah was that is that out of necessity or is it something that you um yeah like is it because you can't source these plants or is it because you wanted to the process to be to have that kind of feel aspect to it yeah yeah. it's pretty much because i can't source the plants um i yeah i some plants i can purchase um and then others you know i just can't buy commercially so a lot of the plant the plants are simply aren't available mm, in, in New mm. Zealand at all, so I haven't been able to make works about those plants. Mm. But sometimes I've been able to purchase seed and grow up myself. So, you know, not being the greatest gardener in the world, it might take me like one <laughs> or two years to get to grow a plant um, successfully enough to have enough of it to photograph. And um, you know, I I might I might lose a lot of it and then only have a little bit left or you know it can be quite tricky getting the plants to photographing stage yeah because that's something that I find really interesting and um especially um well in all your work but it feels like this idea of creating new small worlds by taking things from other places and bringing them um sort of placing them in in an order that um makes them perhaps different from where they were originally um you ha- you do also photograph plants in where they are but with this work could you talk about maybe the difference between something like um mother load where you photograph the plants all growing where they are and this where you sort of intervene in them a little bit more yeah, so I guess um, place in this w- work, uh, Jane says, becomes the place of the studio. Um, and the plants that I photograph in the studio, you know, have been put there for a reason because I'm trying to draw out various um, concerns in the work. And and so with the Jane says works, I am thinking about the space of the photographic studio as a as a kind of gendered space and a domestic space and thinking about the history of early female photographers who worked in their gardens and in their homes with their friends and their daughters and um and made made works in that domestic space so there's you know there's a kind of one set of um discussions being evoked there but also I'm referring to the studio as a kind of commercial space and linking to uh, other images of um, of of plants which have been a reference point for this body of work which are um, Ikebana International magazines mm-hmm. which I collected and um, they use this similar um, approach to photographing with a colour field in the background and um, and the plant arrangement in the foreground. So those most, I guess there's also a link to the kind of that sort of 70s aesthetic, mm. um, which potentially, you know, is, is, a, is also pointed to, um, you know, second wave feminism 
Um, but yeah, I am. I'm really genuinely I'm interested in this idea of plant arranging and domesticity mm. and women's languages and um, you know the way that the histories of how women have engaged um, in practices around plants mm. yeah. in the photographs and in the process of taking the photos yeah. as well as in the content of the photographs if you like and when I use the term woman um, you know I'm using that in an inclusive sense so that's woman inclusive of people on the trans and genderqueer spectrum mm. yeah um talking about this idea of sort of um aesthetics from the past um I wondered like it's I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Abigail's party which is a earlier work of yours and this idea of um sort of creating space and then photographing it if you know what I mean like I I might be wrong but my understanding is that those interiors were dressed and then photographed or did you find them the way that they were so Abigail's party is the flat where mm. it's photographs of yeah. the flat where I lived yeah and on uh it was on K Road in Auckland uh in the late 90s and it was a it was a beautiful building which sadly has been kind of um its, it's integrity has been disrupted these days, but it had a penthouse apartment on top of it. It's right opposite art space. Oh, yeah. And um, when we, you know, um, I was looking for a place to live and we walked up and down K Road asking all the um, owners of buildings that we could find if anyone had a space. And, and we, we got um, taken up to have a look at this apartment. And... It was in a pretty bad, pretty sad state of repair, and we said, "Look, you know, we'll, we'll paint it, and you know, we'll look after it, and would you rent it to us?" And they, the owners agreed, which was fantastic, and so we proceeded to paint it, um, in, you know, in a kind of retro sixties, um, kind of palette, mm, and mm. Um, Lisa Ray Hunter, who I was flatting with at the time, and. Uh, Bobsy Buck had, you know, had, and myself all had modernist collections of, you know, bits and pieces of pottery and this and that. And so the place, um, you know, became quite a set, I guess. Mm. And I was interested in, in focusing on, previous to that, I'd been photographing people and I was mm. interested in photo, focusing on the, on the background, on the, what was what was behind I guess the people um and in, and that's when I started to use the device of absence in the work because you know I wanted to refer to people there's always the presence of people in my work and um you know Abigail's party the titles of the work are all names like the the showgirl um for example so yeah the absence always refers to a presence and so there's a sense sensibility, I guess, of this kind of niche culture that I had explored in Red Eye, but expressed in a in a different way. Mm. And I guess um, that leads me onto um, those. I think they're called public places. Those photos. Oh, there's one right here. Um, <laughs> sort of like these doubled photos, and I wonder. I'm interested in this idea of absence in your work. I think it was one of the first things that really astounded me about it is um, 
what is it to photograph a place without people and especially some of the places that you've photographed that seem to hold some like often they hold trauma or they hold resonance or they hold histories what do you think it is to photograph those places I think obviously we've there's this kind of language in contemporary photography around absence um for me, I was, just, I was interested in absence as a device because it leaves the image open. So, for example, with um, Dublet, which is the approximate site of the Parker Hume um, murder in Christchurch, where two young women um, murdered one of their mothers, um, it, that image is, is just a place in the bush, mm. you know, and mm. it sort of invokes this idea of, you know, crime a crime can happen anywhere you know mm, it doesn't mm. have to be a sort of you know what we might stereotypically <laughs> call a spooky place you know um but you know with those with those images there's a sense of this absence does produce a presence and mm, i think mm. um if you know my work but also if you engage with contemporary photography I think there's there's that language as well established for a viewer and it kind of functions in two ways it allows you know to my to my mind anyway it allows the viewer to populate the image with their own sense of knowledge which which is you know allows the image to be more open mm. in terms of how meaning is established through viewing the image um, and then the other is is this the sense of um, a presence that one then perhaps as a viewer wants to go and interpret further? So I mean, you can look at the the landscape images from public places and just mm. and view mm. them just as landscape images, but mm. they might also produce, you know, through the titles, which provide a bit of a little clue, um, the desire to go and and look further at that history, and so there's a sense of um, inquiry mm. that that absence promotes I think you know you we were talking earlier about you know is is there a sort of uh, sense of the event there you know no I don't, I don't think there is in any real mm. real sort of uh, uh, any sort of sense of physically being there but I think certainly through the, the connection of the title and the site, there's there's sort of a pathway, if you like, mm. to that to that um, subject matter. Because mm. that was one um, thing that was also interesting in your talk. Um, this idea of um, I can't remember how you described it, but. One of the things that often happens with your work is there is performance associated with it or there are artifacts that people take away from the place yeah. or and you know the titles are often quite um, resonant in the work and I wonder um, I think I'm really just asking you to repeat the things you said at the talk but I'm just really interested in this idea that the photograph sits on the wall but then there's this other work that happens around it, often in the gallery space, or um, you know, for instance, my copy of Mother Loader sitting, you know, by my bedside table at the moment. And yeah, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I think um, 
so the photography has these limits and this comes back to your previous question i think a lot of people think that images from public places or they talk about the images from public places having a sort of airy um kind of reading to them but i think that comes more from the device used mm. formally in the work which the device of doubling mm. and that sort of splitting apart of two images that happens through the fact that i've presented one image and then it's mirrored pair opposite mm. it or underneath it in some cases um with a gap there's that there's a sense of um of rupture and violence that happens at the level the formal level of the make you know the making of the image that that i think points to that um sense of violence or that people are kind of um talking about mm, mm. And I think obviously photography, you know, you could put a caption with a photograph and, you know, that could mean, um, you know, that could come to me, that photograph could come to mean anything, you know, many things dependent on what that caption is. So photography is a very slippery um, medium. And so one of the devices that I've used continually is to try and explore the depth or the context or the research that I've done around a f an image or a body of work is to try and expose that through other means, mm. um, performance, uh, at publications, takeaway publications, postcards, posters, and little little books, mm. short just short run, um, you know, artist books that I've made or sometimes larger books, you know, if there's been funding available. So those things kind of become the place where you can engage with that material. And in my uh, online exhibition that's on at the moment at uh, dennydimmongallery.com, um, if you go to the virtual tab there and have a look at the virtual exhibition, you can see there's a downloadable poster so people can, um, you know, take that post your way and, and, and read it and engage with the the some of the interesting contextual material around the Jane Says photographs. Mm. Yeah, because I was just thinking, um, first of all, I, you know, like, I always, I, well, I don't think I've actually said this to you, but I mean, the huge, um, like, inspiration for the book that I've just written coming from those doubled images, like, it's just, like, I mean, yeah, I don't think that book would have been there without those doubled images or a lot of your other work, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from a lot of your work. And this, what I was interested in the other day, I was looking at some of those photos of the performances in the spaces and like, there's such a cool, um, it's almost like bringing the person back into the work, if you know yeah, what I mean. And yeah. like, I just, I don't know, like, um, how do you conceive of that as you're taking the photos or is it something that comes after you've seen the exhibition or yeah how did how did that how did those performances come about well first of all i'm super chuffed that you've um <laughs> you've there's been some resonances that have come into your work that's amazing because your work's amazing oh, um and in terms of the performances i guess i've made publications for a long time and you know and I'll always continue to make publications I'm still making them but you know I, I just thought performance seemed to be a really logical next step for mm. me to and it's just amazing you know having a physical body in a space with images speaking 
text is a really powerful device with the you know with the work and you know it's interesting because performance has a really interesting history in relation to photography because usually photography has been the crutch of performance because mm, it's documented mm. it and it's been the way that people engage with performance after the fact because of course you you miss the performance you miss the performance and all that remains is photographs um, often unless you're lucky enough to see it reperformed somewhere so there's there's a sense of engaging with that history too and perhaps a you know a reversal of of that hierarchy and yeah it's just the immediacy of the body is obviously a very powerful thing and yes that that whole idea of me going right back full circle to my first images in red eye of people um via performance mm, yeah yeah so it's it's allowed me to push through some of the um, limits of photography mm. if you like and it's so interesting because like I was I was thinking that often the way I am actually often looking at photographs of those performances or videos of those performances and it gets this really interesting um, kind of, I don't know, like again that kind of interesting doubling and that sort of thing. I really love the way you talked about intersectionality in your work um, at your recent talk and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be making work about place and plants and herbal medicine. Well, I guess two things kind of led me here to the series, you know, that I've now called Jane Says. And and the first thing was this an interest and a con- commitment to rethinking how we value plants and think about plants. Um, and you can contextualise that, you know, through... Uh, this moment that we're in that you know that the Anthropocene and and the the climate crisis but I the way that I came to that was through making a body of work called Inner Forest which was about a group of trees um, that uh, you know have this intensely doubled meaning and a very dark history and so I was thinking about plants and the ways in which uh, we categorize plants and the ways in which plants are part of our lives. And I was reading this book by Margaret Sparrow called Rough on Woman, um, Abortion Then and Now. And that's a, it's a history of um, abortion in New Zealand in colonial times. And it talks a lot about charlatans and the concoctions that they made and sold for so-called woman's problems and um you know she used things like colonial advertising from newspapers etc to to talk about how um you know women were marketed these products and she sparrow listed them and the contents of them and i'd I'd made previous work about uh, a baby farmer called minnie dean so-called baby farmer um and and Baby farmers were common in all the settler colonies in New Zealand and Canada and in Australia. And um, they took in the illegitimate children of wealthy, Mm. usually wealthy women. Um, So there was a connection there to this history too. And I got really interested in how plants um, could control the female body. Um, And so that was a sort of background, like this this kind of traumatic history of... um, 
abortions, you know, illegal abortions, botched abortions, and how plants are involved in that. That history got me interested in this area. Mm. And I guess the intersectional aspect, the way that intersectionality comes into it, is that, is that there's a feminist trajectory there, and that, you know, a lot of uh, feminist uh, discourse has been about analysing omissions and, and histories that have been lost or suppressed or omitted. But there's also a history in relation to the climate crisis and the way that we treat nature and have become alienated um, from nature. So I'm interested in the intersection of those things. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Western feminism needs to do better in terms of bringing on board diverse perspectives um, and you know that was a, a valid criticism of first and second wave feminism so um, bringing, bringing in other voices bringing in the climate um, debate the planet uh, bringing in issues of, of class etc all you know all I'm interested in trying to bring those things together in a more intersectional using that intersectional um, system mm, mm. and like I really liked what you said there as well is that when you use the word woman you're talking about a broader perhaps yeah. definition than what maybe yeah. first and second wave feminism yeah about. so intersectionality broadens the lens that you know we that was being used in the first and second um, wave of feminism to incorporate you know, women of colour, women who are poor, immigrant women, etc. Mm, yeah. 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 Um, can you talk a little bit about, Jane says, you sort of um, touched on it there, and um, like it is the, I love the way the witch kind of sits as this hinge between Jane says and the new work. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Jane says? Yeah, so Jane says is a collection of plants um, from all over the world, uh, which have been used in tonics and tinctures uh, that are associated with the history of birth control uh, and abortion. So plants that have um, either amenagogic or abortifacient qualities. Amenagogues will um, bring on menstruation and abortifacients will um, end a pregnancy. And often that's a spectrum. So in a, plant might, a plant might be an amenagogue and an abortifacient dependent on do dosage mm. um, and so you know these because these histories are oral histories and because they've been um, you know violently erased um, we don't always have factual links to these plants and they might be um, you know rumored to have had this this ability or these qualities or these medical purposes um, so we don't always know of the veracity of this information you know it's been passed down orally and you know it's become the stuff of myth um, so some of the references I've used are to um, to uh, less sort of scientific based publications I guess and I've also included plants in the series Jane says that were part of these tonics and tinctures mm, so mm, like mm. Op um, opium poppies for mm, example mm. poppies which would have been used obviously not as an abortifacient but as a um you know a salve and a um a pain painkiller 
etc and a calming agent so um so yeah jane says encapsulates the history or attempts to address the history of that group of plants and some of them are uh, native and indigenous to new zealand uh poroporo and um toy toy and uh they um those plants are, were also in Margaret Sparrow's book. Um, she talks about the histories associated with those plants. And yeah, to use those plants, I sought out permission from Anahuefa o Paparangi Marai, which holds that knowledge in my area, um, because the Poroporo bush that I used was from, was in Wellington, etc. So. Mm. And like one of the interesting things that comes to my mind and I think we just talked about it um, before we started recording this this idea of um, a capitalist kind of state as well you know where um, knowledge that was sort of freely shared um, within yeah. a family or within a group is kind of um, prevented you know like it stopped yeah um, and then sold back to communities in a way and I think that feels very um, potent, especially in Jane Says. Like, it, there's there's something about, um, you know, as I was looking through and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, like, yeah, that's weird that the reproductive rights had sat very firmly with, or the reproductive knowledge had sat very firmly with a group that it directly affected and then was sort of taken away and then sold back into that community. That's right. Yeah, I when, I, when I started to get into the research for the project, I first of all came across this wonderful book, which kind of became the um, the kind of key text or the Bible, if you like, for the project. And that was a book called Eve's Herbs by John Riddle. And he put forward the view that women from, you know, the Middle Ages, classical antiquity, had deliberately used abortifacients and as a means of fertility regulation, that they had that knowledge. Um, he's in his 80s now. And, and and there are some other uh, writers that I've also have been really critical to thinking about um, the whole colonial project of voyaging out to um, distant lands of um, procuring plants and uh, putting knowledge about those plants into a particular Western um, system, and that's Linnaeus' system of um, botanical uh, nomenclature and um, and and willfully um, and this is you know something that's really critical and is part of an amazing piece of writing called the politics of natural knowing contraceptive plant properties in the caribbean and it's by rachel o'donnell who's a, a new york based academic she talks about how western knowledge willfully um, produced ignorance in the West about particular aspects of these plants through Linnaeus's system. Mm. So we have this process where, you know, a plant is collected, it's it's sewn onto a piece of paper and it's seed and it's flower and it's leaf and a stem and it's all sewn on that becomes, you know, that gets put in a herbarium. So we can sort of see as part of that process that our understanding of that plant is reduced to what it looks like. Mm. what it physically looked like looks like or uh, the other way you might think about accessing knowledge through the western paradigm is through a botanical drawing for instance you know you know cook had botanical 
um, artists on his voyages. You know, this was a major part of how the um, this this uh, idea of empire and plants kind of worked. And um, you know, again, that reduces us to the way that those plants look. We're we're looking at a two dimensional image. There's no information about the sense of being with that plant, the sense of the place that it came from, let alone the kind of way that it might have been used and its its intricate links to a ecosystem that is flourishing, you know, or is an ecosystem that is functional. Mm-hmm. So this this act of colonization serves to take it out of that context reduce it to how it visually looks and Linnaeus's system you know gave it this name which categorized it but but none of the other knowledge came with it and then of course um, that knowledge was circulating you know among um, scientists etc in the background and has now been you know utilized in um, medical contexts and you know, and and is is in some cases uh, a very valuable mm. commodity. Mm. I was wondering about the aesthetically pleasing garden versus the useful garden, maybe. Um, and when I say aesthetically pleasing, I guess that's from a Western eye or from a um, you know, like we've been trained into thinking that or I've been trained into thinking that neat hedges and that sort of thing. Whereas often a plant's use, um, you know, I'm thinking about um, Wairarapa, you know, that amazing garden which feels rough and ready. And, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, because um, there's also, you know, there's that interesting tension in your work as well between photographing things as they are where they sit and people as they are and where they sit. And then there's... A slightly different work which is perhaps um, yeah which is perhaps crafted slightly more heavily yeah so I think thinking about gardens and the history of botanical gardens is obviously really the history of Western botanical yeah. gardens formal gardens is really tied up with the history of botanical exploration mm. of course mm. of the imperial impulse to go out in the world gather exotic plants and bring them back and present them to the monarchy. Um, and then some of them would be intensely valuable and, you know, you would become a rich man. Um, but so that the history of those botanical gardens is really linked to that system. And um, these are really, botanical gardens are very rigid places. You know, they're, they're designed around... Um, you know, Renaissance perspectival systems, you know, straight lines, and they force nature into a very um, constrained and, you know, rationalised, so-called rationalised um, arrangement. So if we think about my project Motherlode, you know, which explores a little um, biodynamic farm in the Wairarapa I'm trying to to look at how that farm functions as a system outside of that sort of rationalized idea of the garden and also to talk about some of the processes that we can't see again I think you know we've been we've been 
we're being kind of put in Western culture, we're being put into this particular relationship with plants where we think about how they look but not how they function and how critical they are to our lives as well. And so, you know, we can we can see that contrast in in the botanical garden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we with flowers, you know, we're we're obsessed with how they look, how they become these kind of aesthetic armatures for our lives and you know, gardens, you know, formal gardens often function in the same way. Um, so yeah. Trying to trying to think about how some systems and some gardens disrupt that. Yeah. Cause that even seems like when we if we go back to the witch, like um there's something about the arrangement of those plants that makes me sort of see them new rather than regulating them, if you know what I mean. Like there's something about the pre- carity is that a word like the yeah the the sort of yeah it's balanced yeah it's a little stick it's just sort of balancing on the top of that little piece of that little terracotta pot yeah it's slightly precarious Mm. that arrangement yeah can i ask a question about the arrangement of things like do you is there a sketching project i know nothing about akibana or any kind of flower arrangement like is there something or is it through this kind of like um agricultural you know through your work in the garden you sort of get a sense of what um might be interesting or what to put together even just what Mm. put together like how how do you make decisions around that well i learned ikibana in wellington here in wellington for about uh for about a year and one of the first things you do in ikibana is to look at some you know an element and um, look at its qualities and think through, you know, how it might engage with other materials. And so that's sort of, that might be the beginning of the process is finding an interesting element. I mean, for me, the beginning is usually the plant because, you know, I know I've got to feature this mm. plant because mm. the work mm. is about that particular plant. And so I'll go think, I'll, I'll think about that plant, what its qualities are and what I can position it with might also be a relationship to the ceramic pot. Mm, mm, mm. But the process of Ikebana is there's a lot of um, techniques and specific tools that you use. And, and I felt that there was a really strong connection in the sense of like changing and shifting nature um, that, that talked also about potentially about the control that these plants are able to exert over a, over a body, over a female body. For instance, you know, there's a lot of folding or um, removing leaves. You might just leave one leaf on a on a um, stick, or you know, there's a reduction of the elements back to key aspects, etc. Um, so all those, I'm I'm not an ex- ekibana expert, and and uh, the the arrangements that I make. Um, you know they don't they're not um, traditional ikibana in that sense they possibly I guess some people might call them freestyle ikibana um, but yes so I'm, I'm thinking through that though to come back to your question the the qualities of mm. the of the plant or I might find something you know in the garden or something that I in that case it was the little pot yeah. and the idea of putting a stick in it that and that is an ikibana technique because the stick has a branch. 
and the branches in the oh, pot right. and that's what allows you to balance the stick on the pot it just i just i just love that image so much like I've, after the in the past 24 hours like since we sort of um settled on i've been looking at it a lot and i just i don't know like it just bears revisiting doesn't it like that's the other interesting thing about it to me is that um yeah there's just is that because of the absolute crystal clarity of the photograph that you're always finding new things in it or do you think that photography maybe has that quality anyway like whether it is you know like a documentary photo you yeah. know like a photo taken somewhere of something there's always something new to see what do you yeah well, I think if you think about you know it's also in the difference between cinema and photography you know mm, mm. like if you're watching a film you know you're being you're being led around through you know through a scene and and you're not resting or settling on a single element usually mm. I mean you might at some point see something that really interests you and follow that but with a photograph you know you're forced into a particular relationship with this just a single you know millisecond or frag fragment of a second and so and also because i'm i am using uh the device of detail mm. and then mm. blowing the image up very big mm. so that you get to look into it in a way that you wouldn't in everyday life you know if you're thinking about the way you're moving through the world you don't usually stop and interrogate things in intense detail and a photograph allows you to do that mm. so so that's you know that is a function of of the medium and a fantastic one yeah and also like I was just thinking um when you were talking about how the size of the objects as well I was thinking there's an interesting thing that happens with just a general well to me because my brain's a bit weird but like there's something even just my relationship and size to it if you know what I mean like it, it, it becomes not it's you know not normal size so there's yeah there's this kind of shift in my relationship with it, if you know what I mean. Like it's not, I'm not so much able to kind of crush it or, you know, like it, it feels, there's a shift in power feels maybe. strong. Yeah. 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 They're just magnificent. Yeah. I think um, the scale, the scale of them, especially an arrangement like that, which is actually only probably 15 centimetres no high way. in real life. Oh my gosh. That's so, blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, because it's, it's absolutely <laughs> tiny. That little bottle is only about eight centimetres high. That is unbelievable. So, so that one has really been made yeah. gigantic. It's been made um, monumental in a sense, yeah. that arrangement. And it even, like, I, I wanted to sort of finish off by talking a bit about the virtual space. Like, um, your exhibition um, at the moment you know can be experienced um through a computer like it's wonderful and you know there's a film that goes with it and it's quite amazing but it was interesting because when i was looking at it online i still see it as gigantic and monumental like it even though it's slightly smaller than it appears what's that process been like of sort of especially when you are someone who has had performance in the space and you know what can you talk a little bit about um the virtual exhibition space like what's that been like yeah it's interesting I mean obviously the virtual exhibition space has amazing potential because it 
brings a totally different audience who would never go to an art gallery mm-hmm. um, in and um, it's you know the access uh, access to the work is not through uh, you know doesn't require any um, you know travel or funding to travel etc if you have a computer you can visit the show so there's a fantastic um, democratic aspect to the virtual exhibition it's never going to replace or be the same as the experience of seeing the work physically um, and so in thinking through that we used some details mm-hmm. just to, mm-hmm. in the exhibition so that people could sort of um, sense what it might be like to look at the images at scale and and it's also why we include the poster because you know I wanted uh, there to be an opportunity because obviously we couldn't do the performance mm, yeah. um, I guess we could have done an online performance but you know the, the logistics of that would be quite tricky um, so the poster is this, you know is the way that you can access some of the kind of um, extra information around the work uh, also it was obviously it's you know it's Denny Dimon Gallery is based in New York so they are you know they're in in lockdown and they have been for some time and obviously they've been through you know mega doses of um tidal waves of political turmoil and um you know all all the stuff that's been going on in in the states you know over the last 18 months has obviously just had a profound effect so the they wanted you know to look at life in New Zealand we're obviously in this extremely privileged situation mm. and because I grow a lot of the plants up north um, because I you know Wellington climate's a bit tricky for growing things you know they wanted to look into that site so we made the video and it's me in the garden up there talking about the process of growing the plants and it gives a little bit of a look into to the site where um, I've been making the work. I have a studio in the Coromandel. So, um, yes, it gives a bit of an insight into that. So we we thought a lot about how to activate the digital space Mm. and, you know, how to to kind of contend with it and shape the show. Uh, Obviously, it's a really different um, proposition to making a physical exhibition Mm. Mm. and a whole lot of different constructs, uh, concerns have to be you know considered mm, mm. and you're sort of um is it okay to say like you're heading off to make some physical exhibitions now yeah and yeah. is it has it has it informed the physical space at all do you think yeah for you? I, I think it definitely has and you know you can see that um with people making um a lot of video more video mm, content mm, even yourself mm, mm, going yeah. around wellington and doing your little gallery visits (laughs) and and doing this podcast i think you know one of the things i've really enjoyed about lockdown um and i want to really recognize that this is not everybody's experience um because we are so privileged here um is is being able to go to all these amazing online Mm. events you know i've been to sort of numerous zoom things etc that i just wouldn't have the have had the opportunity to go to pre-covid so um yeah that's really 
and we'll take that with us that will never that will never change back I don't think now mm. you know that space is always going to be much more important and it just I mean there's an amazing um that you use that word democratization and I think you know I know um I got to go to New York a couple of years ago and I went to the Guggenheim and there were like student like primary school students walking around and looking at it and I was thinking how different would my art history degree have been if I'd been you know what I mean like they were looking at Rothko you know they were sitting there in the presence of them um I think that brings us to the end awesome it was awesome chatting to you it was awesome chatting to you thank you very much hello again it's Pip here and um I've had a thought for an exercise um Anne in this episode talks about starting with a plant and composing around that. And I wondered if this could be an interesting way to start a piece of writing. You could find out about the uses of a plant that you see every day, or you could start with a physical condition and find a a plant associated with its remedy. I also thought that um, you could um, use plants or devise some magical uses for the plants around you. Maybe a dandelion um, can help you travel in time. Um, Maybe the grass that you walk over can help you to be telepathic. Anyway. I hope that you have a good time with this. Um, The way that I did it was I just started by jotting down a few thoughts and then I free wrote for three or four minutes. So yeah, have a really good day. Thanks heaps.